Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lit Up. It's my pleasure to share a conversation I had with the New York Times bestselling author, Veronica Roth, a couple of months ago. We talk about her new adult novel, Chosen Ones, which is about five ordinary teenagers who are singled out by a prophecy to take down an impossibly powerful uh, force wreaking havoc across North America. Now, these teenagers saved the world 15 years ago, and this book explores what happens afterwards, what happens when the most important thing that is meant to have happened to you uh, is over, and what do you do with the rest of your life? Veronica is also best known for uh, the Divergent series, which you may have read or you've probably seen one of the blockbuster films that came from it. She also writes various essays and short stories. I love this book and I think it'll be really something to uh, dive into, uh, especially when it's a bit hard to concentrate. It's incredibly gripping. I do have to mention that uh, we had this conversation before the coronavirus, so I'm hoping it can be a bit of a reprieve from the constant reference to that. She's a gorgeous human being, as you will hear, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Lit Up. It's my great pleasure to have Veronica Roth on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're in New York on a very drizzly, supposed to be winter day, though it doesn't feel like it. No, it's much warmer than it is at home, so (laughs) happy about that. So, Veronica, you're from windy and freezing Chicago, and that kind of is infused in all of your books, I would say. Yeah, I mean, um, the Carve the Mark series is set in a galaxy far, far away. But other than that, they're all Chicago-based. Yeah. And so I want to start um, with you reading the letter that came with the book. Sure. Now, I'm not sure if everyone's going to get this letter because I got a, a galley. But I feel like it really sets up what this is about. And we're going to be very careful not to... Reveal spoilers. Oh, yeah. Because why would we do that? Everyone can enjoy the book on their own. So let's start there because it's a, it's a great way. 
to get into it. All right. Dear reader, there's a moment in Catherine Bigelow's 2008 film, The Hurt Locker, when we see our hero, who we have previously watched diffuse bombs in a war zone in a grocery store in America. He's staring helplessly at a wall of cereal boxes. I think about that moment, a little funny, a little sad, all the time. How on earth can that man learn how to care about cereal brands again after what he's been through? I can't help but wonder about all the heroes I loved most when I was young, the ones singled out for a particular destiny, the ones who bore heavy burdens on behalf of people older and wiser than they were. How do they find normal again after taking down a dark lord? How do they cope with being famous for the same thing that brought them trauma, death, and loss? How do they move on? Can they? I wrote this book to dig into that question. My main character, Sloane, is a chosen one. She's haunted by her own dark lord, mired in a delayed adolescence, unqualified for a real job, so famous she can't leave her house, and capable of relating to anyone but the four friends who fought by her side. She is drowning in a wall of cereal boxes. She's living in the after moments. But her story goes on. They all do. Thank you so much. Of course. So... It seems like you're interested in this moment um, of when someone becomes crazily famous for the thing that they might not necessarily have wanted to be famous for, how it could kind of stunt someone's behaviour. And I know kind of with actors, which is awful to kind of generalise, but we often say, oh, at the moment of fame, um, they're kind of held in that place emotionally. Yeah, yeah. I think um, Taylor Swift just referred to that with in reference to her documentary that just came out. And um, I think about that all the time, the actors frozen at their level of maturity when they become famous. In this novel, there are five chosen ones. And at what age did they have this cataclysmic thing happen to them? And what did happen to them when they were kind of roughly 13, 14 years old? Well, when they're 13 or 14, I forget which, um, they're recruited by the government to take on this mission, um, which is to defeat this great evil force that's rising up in North America. Um, So they don't have to actually face them at that age, but that's kind of when it starts. They're taken from their homes and they're uh, trained, basically, to defeat him. The book opens, and it's not necessarily from Sloane's voice, the protagonist, we get to hear about her through what other people think about her, like in news clippings and there are kind of comedians talking about her. There's these five young adults are such a part of the world's narrative now. There's a part I'd also like you to read from and then we'll chat like normal people because it sets up, okay, I'm not going to say what it sets up mm-hmm. because we'll just get to hear it for ourselves. This is an article from a fake news magazine um, and it's called Sloan Andrews Doesn't Care. No, really. Um, Okay. I don't like Sloan Andrews, but I might want to sleep with her. I meet her at her neighborhood coffee shop, one of her usual haunts, or so she says. The barista doesn't seem to recognize her as either a customer or one of the five teenagers who took down the dark one almost a decade ago. Which, to be honest, seems remarkable because, world-famous face aside, Sloane Andrews is that wholesome, clean brand of gorgeous that makes you want to get it dirty. If she's wearing makeup, I can't see it. She's all clear skin and big blue eyes, a walking, talking cosmetics ad. 
She's wearing a Cubs hat when she comes in with her long brown hair pulled through the back, a gray t-shirt that's tight in all the right places, ripped jeans that show off long, shapely legs, and a pair of sneakers. They're the kind of clothes that say she doesn't give a fuck about clothes, or even about the long, lean body that fills them. And that's the thing about Sloane. I believe it. I believe she doesn't give a fuck about anything, least of all meeting me. She didn't even want to do this interview. She only agreed, she said, because her boyfriend, Matthew Weeks, fellow chosen one, asked her to support the release of his new book, Still Choosing, out February 3rd. In our preliminary exchanges about this interview, she didn't have many ideas for where I might meet her. Even though everyone in Chicago already knows where Sloan lives, in the north side neighborhood of Uptown, just blocks from Lakeshore Drive, and she flat out refused to let me see her apartment. I don't go anywhere, she wrote. I get accosted when I do. So unless you want to try to keep up with me on a run, it's Java Jam or nowhere. I'm not sure I could take notes and jog at the same time, so Java Jam it is. Her coffee secured, she takes off the baseball cap and her hair falls to her shoulders like she was just tumbling around on a mattress. But something about her face, maybe it's her slightly too close together eyes or the way she cocks her head sharply when she doesn't like what you just said, makes her look like a bird of prey. With a single glance, she's turned the tables and I'm the one on guard, not her. I fumble around for my first question. And where most people might smile, try to get me to like them, Sloane just stares. The 10-year anniversary of your victory over the Dark One is coming up, I say. How does it feel? It feels like survival, she says. Her voice is flinty and sharp. It makes a shiver go down my spine, and I can't figure out if that's a good thing or not. Not triumph, I ask, and she rolls her eyes. Next question, she replies, and she takes her first sip of coffee. That's when I realize it. I don't like her. This woman saved thousands, no, millions of lives. Hell, she probably saved my life in one way or another. At 13, she was named by prophecy, along with four others, as someone who would defeat an all-powerful being of pure malice. She survived a handful of battles with the Dark One, including one during a brief kidnapping, the details of which she has never shared, and came out of it unscathed and beautiful, more famous than anyone in the history of being famous. And to top it off, She's in a long-term relationship with Matthew Weeks, golden boy, the chosen one among chosen ones, and quite possibly the kindest person alive. But I still don't like her, and she couldn't care less. Thank you. So that not only gives us a sense of kind of the, the beginning of the story and what's happened to these five young people, but it also gives you a sense of the kind of misogynist writing that... Yeah. <laughs> is out there in the world. So obviously in researching for interviewing you, I found that Chicago Tribune profile. Yeah. So this was an article in the Chicago Tribune in October 2013 and the title is Veronica Roth, The Next Literary Superstar by Christopher Borelli. And I mean, we can like delve into it more, but the kind of condescension in this and the sexualizing of you, like, so, I mean, fast. How did you react when that came out? Not well. Yeah. Um, I was, for context, 22 years old. And this was the, I think it was the second major profile that had been done about me. And the first was written by a woman. And it wasn't like that at all. I mean, I was so angry. 
to be described like that. And also, I mean, the main problem with that piece is that I was not quoted very much, maybe once or twice. And the piece was about me. People were talking about me in the piece, but more the idea of me and of what I was going through, not actually me, my experience of it, what I thought about any of it. I mean, I was not in it. I was only an object. I honestly was just enraged. And then, of course, I had that kind of, oh, my God, moment, knowing that this piece that you've written into this new book is probably a a take on that. Sure. I mean, certainly the Tribune piece that we're talking about is not as bad as it can get which is a thing I don't even, I'm like, of course I would say that. Every woman is like, it could be worse. (laughs) Um, But I read a lot of celebrity profiles in preparation for writing that piece. Um, But I did have this personal feeling about, this personal experience of having been written about that way. It also came across to me as how underestimated young women are. And that it was like in the piece, it's like, oh, and Veronica's professor what a surprise to have a young woman so obviously have talent. Yeah, what a shock. <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny because I've just never talked about this before. Um, and it's, I felt for a long time after that came out that I was being too dramatic about it, that I was taking it too personally. And so to have, you have had this reaction actually feels so validating um, that I'm like, I'm, I'm like getting weepy here because I just feel like for 10 years I've been thinking about this piece as being so, like diminishing me so much. And I don't know. I'm just glad that you read it and understood. Yeah, but it was. I read it and there are so many different parts that made me angry for different reasons. So it was interesting to then read it. And this the piece that you read from kind of is a 2020 piece, you know, as if it's written now. And we hope kind of in the wake of Me Too and everything that we feel like we've gone through that pieces like that won't be written about women anymore. Yeah, that's the hope. I, th- I think it would be reacted to a lot differently if they were as bad. There's a particular Margot Robbie piece from, I forget what year it was written. I mean, it was a few years ago that I just, I mean, it's probably the one that I took the most inspiration from because Margot Robbie... Uh, like in my mind looks a little like Sloane. So I felt like the way she's described would be similar to the way Sloane would be described. Um, and it's particularly egregious and horrible. Uh, you should definitely just Google, I think, I don't want to say the name of the publication, but Margot Robbie, sexist journalism, whatever. <laughs> um, so it was written a couple of years ago and I just don't think that anyone would dare to write that now um, in the same way. I'm sure these pieces are still written and will still be written for a long time, but the backlash potential is much higher now, which I think is like a good consequence of where our culture is. Sometimes, you know, I feel odd about the way that we handle these things, but in this case, like I think the, um, that people are paying attention to this stuff is good. I also felt a little responsible in some ways because I've written profiles about women. And I was thinking about this all last night and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, we've all read them. Like, the skin how could she have that dewy porcelain skin she's just come from pilates like we can just imagine (laughs) them all and trying to think of that way in because we always you know want to introduce a person in some way 
And I just felt, I'm like, I'm proud. The one way I described this actress was coming in with her copy of A Little Life, Hanya Yanagihara's book. And I was like, she's so cool. Like, I love her. So I was like, you're okay. Mm -hmm. But thinking that we have to be so careful about that. Like, would we describe men that way? Yeah, I mean, um, we're all, we have all internalized misogyny. We have done it. Um, And so I think, like, I have had other profiles written since then that have also not been so great, but they've been by women. And I don't, I don't think they're doing it on purpose. Like I really, I think this has just become the air that we breathe. So I don't know. I'm sure I've described people in a bad way too. Like I don't, you know, no one is like perfectly innocent in this, but um, we just have to recognize it and move forward in a different way, I guess. Well, and for Sloane in the novel, the way she moves forward from this is to withdraw from the spotlight and particularly withdraw from social media. And some of her friends, this kind of crew, these other four, have different ways of dealing with their fame. Like, can you talk a little bit? I mean, there's a passage in there that just goes straight to the heart of our culture and how, you know, if someone gets a little bit of notoriety, everyone's on them about what, how are they going to make the most of this moment? Mm -hmm. Everyone gets a book deal. And I'm part of it because I'm thinking they should have a book. (laughs) You know, I should talk to them because they're having a moment. But how does each of these chosen ones um, deal with it in their own way? And I guess I'm kind of leaning in on our kind of Insta queen. Oh, Esther. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the chosen ones, her name is Esther and she starts an Instagram channel. I mean, it's not called Instagram in the book. It's called Insta. Um, But she has a channel and she has basically like a lifestyle blog kind of situation happening. So she's presented to us initially as a little bit vain and shallow, but obviously that's not all of who she is. She's got a lot of struggles just like the rest of them, but she's decided to cover it up basically. That's her way of coping. And so how do each of them cope? I would say Sloane has such a kind of uh, hard exterior. Um, that's simplifying things. And True, though. Yeah. Yeah. And she's awesome. <laughs> so let's talk about the others and then we'll get back to Sloane because she is so great. Well, uh, one of the others, Albie, is someone who was addicted to drugs and struggling with mental illness. And he is, you know, clean at the start of the story. Um, And that's kind of how he's coped. And then the other question is like, how do they make money? Because, you know, saving the world is not like you get money for that. (laughs) Um, So he does like commercials in China or something is, is the idea for what Albie does. Uh, Matthew is Sloane's boyfriend, and he kind of takes on the weight of the world. He feels like he has to represent his community. He's a black man, and um, being a black chosen one is no joke. Like, you get a lot of pressure from white people, from black people, um, from everywhere, and he's trying to juggle all of that, and it's kind of it's weighing on him quite a bit. And then um, Inez is... How does she cope? She's paranoid. She goes to therapy, but she's still like booby trapping the apartment, basically. Like she's still dealing with um, mental illness. And that's kind of a point where she and Sloane um, have like a commonality because they both, they both love their benzodiazepines um, and, you know, are, are trying to find ways to 
um, just deal with it. But I think Inez also has like a book deal. She writes graphic novels. So that's how she is like making money. Yeah. And Matthew is writing books as well. So I feel like that's what would happen, right? We'd want books oh, from those people. Definitely, to mm-hmm. hear their story. And don't we want to hear their innermost traumas and thoughts? I've been thinking about this a lot, about what we ask of people and why. Mm-hmm. And it's all in the name of relatability. But it's so right to want a private life. Yeah, man. Can you imagine like Harry Potter going to the grocery store after that? <laughs> like, that wouldn't happen. Not anyway. <laughs> I think about this a lot. What do I, I mean, you reread Harry Potter a lot? I do. Yeah, semi-regularly. Mm-hmm. A little less now. But is it kind of a comfort read? It is a comfort read, yeah. I mean, I read them when I was a kid. Um, like I was 11 when Harry was 11, so I kind of grew up with them. And they were, you know, they make me feel things at certain times of year I start to get the urge to read them I love that so throughout the book there's also a lot of um, documents that I would say mirror state documents or also psychological evaluations and Sloan requests her classified documents from the government and she's granted that permission because she has saved the world but as we learn you know she's had a lot of struggles with anxiety and she does this thing called exposure therapy yes yeah so what is that and does it work well exposure therapy is something I know a lot about uh so exposure therapy was a point of inspiration for Divergent my first book and it's obviously dealt with here but exposure therapy is essentially when you have anxiety or a phobia um you are in a safe environment, you encounter whatever provokes that fear um, over and over again until your brain starts to kind of calm down in response to that stimulus. So it does work and it's very effective. And I've, I've done it a few times myself for the treatment of my anxiety disorder. So that's partly why it's so close to me. It's very difficult. It feels like torture to just make yourself anxious over and over again. But I've come a long way because of it. And is that, I mean, do you mind me asking kind of what were the things that you exposed yourself to? Well, when I was uh, 22 years old, I just wasn't really prepared for the level of public scrutiny that I would get. I mean, Divergent surprised everyone and I was definitely surprised by it. So just suddenly being reviewed by that many people, I think. And they weren't just reviewing my book. They were like reviewing my my abilities as a writer and my person in general. So um, what I did in exposure therapy is I would read, you know, some of the things people were writing about me over and over again. Yeah. Which has made me tougher. Like now I see reviews and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like I don't, I just don't react anymore. And because the human brain has an amazing capacity to become desensitized. It's how we survive. And it's like a good thing that your brain does. And it's pretty amazing to harness that. You know, we talk about developing a thicker skin and I had to really go after my thicker skin is how I think about it. Huh, so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's good and it's also antithetical to a lot of the way people think about it. So. Um, in this, we, we've been emphasizing or discussing, you know, trigger warnings, um, a lot in books and 
I don't want to get into that because I think there's arguments for and arguments against that makes sense. But the general idea of it is that we should be avoiding things that make us uncomfortable. And that actually reinforces your fear or, you know, your trauma in some ways. So for the treatment of PTSD, they do exposure therapy. So this idea that like everything that makes you upset is something that you need to avoid. Um, I don't know. That's not like actually scientifically good for your brain. Uh, avoiding things kind of makes them worse. So I'm not saying everyone should go out and just like make themselves uncomfortable constantly. Like avoiding is actually good for a short term solution to, you know, these t things that might bother you. But for a long term solution, it makes them more powerful. As you mentioned in that letter you read, the PTSD of having an intense experience, it made me think of war veterans. And essentially these characters have lived through a war. Mm -hmm. They've also been at the center of such cataclysmic kind of loss of human life. And then trying to imagine them buying cereal or finding meaning, yeah. you know, in really like I have to vacuum now. Was that something you had to deal with? Like my sense is that you're a very <laughs> grounded person and that you probably love the, like, the making of the tea in the morning. You're right about that. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I didn't go through a war. Like, I had a really successful book series. So for me, <laughs> you know, it just, it's not the same. Um, so I did also PTSD research for this book. I did it for Diversion and also for Carve the Mark. And then again, so you, you can never know too much about what you're writing about. So for me, like, I don't have PTSD, you know, like I am an anxious person and I'm a less anxious person now because of therapy and that's great. But no, I... I got to go back to normal, you know. Um, people don't know what authors look like, so you can just have a normal life, you know, even if your book is made into a movie. No one's going to recognize you. It's fine. <laughs> that is the best thing, I think. And, you know, sometimes I think when we're younger and, I mean, I don't know if this happened, your experience of life kind of thrust you into this moment. But I think for the rest of us, you imagine, like, there's kind of a longing to have some kind of fame, right? Mm -hmm. the, like, yeah it's a horrible part of ourselves to kind of think about, but having grown older and seeing how it affects people, you think, oh, to have that anonymity and yet to be able to do what you love. Cause so often to do the thing you love comes with a level of exposure. Yeah. No, I think being an author is sort of perfect in that way. So like one time I got recognized by a very sweet teenage girl at an airport that happened to me one time. <laughs> it was in peak divergent movie, you know, fame sort of. And she was so sweet. She was like, can I take a picture with you? And I was like, sure, but not in the bathroom. <laughs> so, you know, we went to the hallway and took it and it was really great. So um, to me, that's like the perfect level of recognition. Someone admires your work, someone cares, but mostly people leave you alone, which is great. There's one passage in the book that really struck me because I was reading it while Australia was burning. And um, one of these disasters, this, it's hard to describe, but you, you do it so well, um, happens in Australia. And this is many years since the Chosen Ones have saved the world. But these, well, how would you call them, phenomenon? Strange phenomenon are happening. Yes. 
and some would call it magic, but it's these either... I love all the conspiracy theories that you talk about because it's so in our vernacular at the moment. What are they? It's that it's a climate change. It's reaction. climate change. It's alien invasion. It's I don't know. I forgot what the other ones are. So when you let your imagination run, and you were obviously writing this, you know, many years ago now, I feel like the sad thing is is that our world is almost sometimes reflecting the things you've written even though yours might be slightly more extreme. Can you tell us about these drain sites and what they are? So the dark the dark one's presence in this version of Earth um, starts with these cataclysmic events called drains. And no one knows what they are. They think they're, at first, people think they're extreme weather events, and then they think they might be terrorist attacks, and then they think they might be alien invasions. Um, but they start to notice that there's always one figure at the center of these um, events. And they're basically like, I mean, an explosion and a tornado mixed together. So they just pull, they rip people limb from limb, basically. It's like really horrifying. Um, but they notice that the, there's a figure at the center of them, and that's when they discover that the Dark One exists, that it's not just this like natural phenomenon that's happening, that it's actually being caused by this person. There's also these followers of the Dark One. Well, you know, I, <laughs> for every like Looney Tunes person in the world, there is a bunch of followers, probably. <laughs> And they seem to kind of camp and congregate around these sites. And I thought you made a really astute observation about how these people feel that around these areas where such horrible things happen and so many people die, there's kind of a thinner barrier between life and death. Mm -hmm. What do you think the attraction is for people to feel close to evil? Wow, that's a good question. Well, we do have a fascination with it, right? I mean, when you talk about serial killers, like you don't hear about their victims, you hear about them, their childhood, what could possibly have led someone to become this. And I think it's mysterious to us as we do not want to kill a bunch of people. I mean, presumably. Um, and I'm not sure why it interests us. I think we're a little morbid, but we also just have a craving to understand. We think that people have to make sense. And... They don't. People behave randomly and nonsensically and illogically all the time. But that's a scary thing to confront. So we want to make, make sense of it. And, you know, if you lost someone at an event like this, you'd want to know why, what happened. And um, especially if it was magic, you know, like, what does that mean? Like, what is magic? And uh, how is it here? Has it always been here? You know, you'd want answers. So, you know, where there is loss, there are people who want answers. I think. And also where there's evil, people want answers. That's true. I feel like there's a, a fascination with that in, the, in our culture at the moment, just with all the true crime yeah. podcasts. And I always think, why do we want to delve into the worst parts of humanity? You think we're like afraid that they exist in us too, or we want to be sure that they don't? Like, I don't know, but it is interesting. I sometimes listen to true crime myself and I ask myself these questions. It's kind of like scratching an itch. Yeah, a little. 
I want to like one of the questions I want to ask is, do you believe in magic? <laughs> <laughs> do you believe in magic? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I want to. I know. Wouldn't that be cool? No, maybe I don't. not the kind that's in the book, but maybe a fantasy kind. I don't even believe in ghosts. Like I really, I've got not a lot of room for that kind of thing in my in my world. But um, you know, I am a religious person, so I guess I believe in uh in something bigger but i don't believe in it's like little manifestations i guess like i found a quarter on the sidewalk thank you god for putting that quarter on my path like i'm just not one of those people <laughs> this is an interesting segue you're really good at math right am i <laughs> i'm okay at math yeah so there are kind of elements in the book that um, delve into kind of string theory and physics and these ideas of alternate dimensions. And we can't give too much away. But I'm really interested in the kind of the more practical side of you understanding what these things are. Like, actually, could you explain string theory to me? Oh boy. I mean, it's just a lot I? of pressure, but you know, it's like, how would you explain this to a eighth grader? String theory is, uh, oh my God, I'm going to get like skewered by actual scientists. String theory, as far as I understand it, is a theory that um, our, the smallest particles in our world are not just atoms, but they're like these little vibrating strings sort of that comprise our universe. And somehow this relates to multiverse theory. I did like a lot of research for the book about it and then immediately all of that information disappeared from my brain. But I did watch a whole documentary on string theory after taking the AP calculus test in high school. So that's how I know about it is because we watched this like five-part miniseries about it in high school. Hmm. But it is interesting to think about other dimensions. Like I don't think it feels that far off. Like you mentioned even in the book, um, I mean not kind of explicitly but we have a space force now in the u.s yes we do and for some reason they wear camouflage <laughs> do you see those uniforms no i haven't they're like gonna... you know camouflage is supposed to be like for the woods and the space force uniforms have like woods based camouflage which is very strange anyway <laughs> I feel like they should be black with little diamantes on them yes, or something. Come on. Like a bit of sparkle. Maybe like silver, like the like the ship, you know? No. But it is scary to think of militarizing space. Like why is that the case? Like why do we instantly go to there's going to be wars? I mean, there are so many wars on Earth. We're just dogs trying to mark our territory, really. I feel like space is what? The next Wild West, so... We just want to be out there. I don't know. It's so, it's so silly to me. But there's another theme in the book, and that is that after these terrible things, these events happen and these characters save the world, that the US specifically goes into a period of isolation. Yeah. And that feels to reflect our times. Like they go into isolation, but they don't militarize any less. Right. Well, they don't know where the dark one came from. So they assume, as I think many Americans would, that they must have come from outside. And so they start closing themselves off as a result. Also, one of these dark one followers, I think his name is Charles Wright in the book. Yes. Yeah. So he, I think there was just a, 
very sly hint in there because it's mentioned that he once lived in the former Trump Tower in Chicago. (laughs) You're picking up on all these things I did. Yeah. Um, You know, we think of like, I don't know, we characterize like a like a domestic terrorist as a particular thing. That is not what they generally look like. They are generally white men. Period. But, you know, that's what they look like. So, you know, if we're going to be afraid of anyone, (laughs) seems like we should be more wary about the people around us, not the people coming from without who just need a place to live, a safe place to live. All the chosen ones have an artifact that's very much um, their own and something that helps them with their own powers or gives them powers. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about Sloane's artifact and how hers is better than everyone else's? It is. (laughs) So Sloane has Cochet's needle, which is an object of legend in, I think it comes from Russian folklore. Uh, It is the soul of a man. And it is, he keeps it like in an egg, which is in a duck, which is in a rabbit, <laughs> which is in a box. Like the, the, the folk tales vary, but like that's, you know, he's got this needle, it contains his soul and uh, he hides it basically. And what Sloane does at one point in the book, sort of in the past, is she goes on this deep scuba dive to recover this artifact. Um, It's on a sunken Russian or Soviet ship. So uh, hers is the most powerful object. (laughs) Surprise! Or, you know, is it? Or is it Sloane who's the most powerful? I don't know. It's interesting thinking about kind of dystopian writing or what would you call this novel? Like, oh what? boy. It's like a sci-fi fantasy hybrid a little bit. Yeah. All of the magic is sort of sciency. So I know that's not a technical term, but it's related to frequency and these kind of natural forces that have been unleashed on the earth. So. And when you think of writing a book like this, you've, in other places, I've heard you talk about world building and how you do that. And it's almost like building a city, a structure, a scaffolding. And then what comes first for you? Is it the characters? And then do you decide, I want them to have these powers, then I'm going to give them tools. And how much of the, you know, each genre often has rules within it as well, which you can either take on or break what come what came first for this story well what came first was the concept really and that's that's how i work most of the time i think of an idea that would be interesting or worth exploring or that i have questions about so in this case it was you know what happens after what happens after you save the world as a teenager like what kind of adult do you grow into so that's where it started which i think means that it starts with character really and um i know how important it is to build a magic system and to make sure that it has rules and that it has limits. Otherwise, it's not satisfying to read about. Because if you feel like the magic can accomplish literally anything, then you're kind of betrayed by it. The story betrays you. Because at any point, magic can fix everything, which is just like not what we like in our reading experiences for good reason. With this one, the magic system is very much related to Sloan. So Sloane is someone who, I mean, she's pretty severely depressed, I would say. And so she kind of want, doesn't want anything. Um, but the magic system is related to desire. So uh, it's not just 
desire, but it's desire for impossible things. And the reason I like that is because it's a magic system that women would particularly be good at because women are used to wanting impossible things. Um, the world makes things impossible for us. We can't have it all, you know? Um, you can't have a family and advance perfectly through work and make the same as your male counterparts. You can't. But you are allowed to want it. And so the journey for Sloane is in letting herself want as much as she wants. And she wants it all, basically. Um, and I don't know, that is sort of like the foundation of the magic system. And then, of course, I wanted it to be related to something scientific. So it's channeled by sound, which you can measure by measuring frequency. So the people in this world, I don't want to spoil, you know, all that, but... It's okay. Um, the people in this world use like whistles and they use these like machines that help them to monitor sound frequency and they use their voices and it's sort of romantic, you know, singing magic into being or whistling it into being, but it is driven by the force of desire. Oh, I, I love that answer. Yes. In the acknowledgements of the book, there's something particularly beautiful which you end on. And you kind of thank your family and your loved ones for understanding when you disappear into the work. But also, which really struck me, you said, for reminding me I am loved beyond what I make. And I thought, that's such a great reminder for everyone. Yeah. Worst Did that take a while to come to? Yeah, I think I am a very productive person and a practical person. And so to me, you know, my practical contributions to the world often seem like the most important thing I have to offer. But that's not true, actually. That's not true for anyone. Because if you say that, then you're saying that someone who isn't as, like has some, some kind of health problem or has some kind of mental illness or, um, you know, just isn't as, as physically capable as someone else or has other limitations that they're not as worthwhile because they don't produce as much. And that's just not right. Um, and so it's bigger than just me wanting to be uh, reassured that even if I write a bad book, people will still love me. Um, it's, it's about like how you see other people. So the way you tell yourself you're worthwhile is the way you tell other people that they're worthwhile. So I think, um, you know, in, in a capitalist, capitalist society, like we emphasize um, productivity in a way that I think is harmful in some ways. That's kind of where that thought comes from. Um, but, you know, mostly it's personal. Like I, I just don't want to get caught up in thinking that I have to keep you know, performing at a particular level or have a particular definition of success in order to be worthwhile to the people around me. So I think that should be true for everyone. Like your job is not you, period. Yeah, I love that. I just understand that. I just had an example of going home to Australia and spending time with family and friends. And I think spending time with those old childhood friends, there's nothing like it. Um, but also to be so disconnected from the kind of career highs that I have in New York and going home and realising that your family and friends, they would just love to have you over and like bake a cake together and drink tea. Yeah. And you don't need stories of 
you know, who you've met or the, I mean, hopefully that's not the type of person like the currency I run on either, but, you know, you can catch yourself sometimes. Sure. I mean, if you're around a lot of people who value those things, then you start to value those things. So it's a good reminder. Just, you know, my family remembers me as a child and they will never take me that seriously. And it's such a good reminder. So like, remember when you were five and, you know, we told you to smack your face into this piece of pizza and you did it. <laughs> like they don't care uh, who I've met, <laughs> what kind of fancy parties I've been to. What they care about is me. So, yeah. Are there any books that you return to? We've talked about Harry Potter, but other ones that um, people might not have heard of or that any writers you're interested in right now? Oh, yeah. I mean, suddenly my mind is full of things. Um, you know, one at least uh, YA book that's held up over time is Sabriel by Garth Nix. So if anyone likes fantasy, those are worth a read. Um, they feature younger characters, but they're great. They absolutely stand the test of time. Um, as far as other book, other books I return to, hmm... Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Totally different kind of book. Um... It is contemporary literary fiction and it's beautiful. So that's another one. Who else am I thinking of? Hmm. One book I read recently that I really liked was The Memory Police by Yoko Okama. Um, I think it was published in the 90s, but it's just recently been translated from Japanese. And it's sort of a fantasy dystopia a little bit where objects are or concepts are like removed from public memory um, by the police. So things start to disappear around her basically. And it's very strange and beautiful and um, definitely worth reading for sure. Are you deep in another book right now? Right now I'm reading The City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders, whose first book I was totally wild about. So I'm, I'm pretty early into this one, but it's looking good so far. And then are you deep into your own new book? Oh, you mean as well. writing. So I got two for one. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not writing right now. I am kind of taking a pause, but the next thing I need to work on is Chosen One's number two. Oh, great. So, yeah, it has a sequel and that's it. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for joining Veronica Roth and I uh, for our conversation. One thing I loved so much about the episode was how we came to understand how Veronica's experiences both in Chicago and in life have informed her work, but in such a smart and decisive way. I'd love to hear what you thought of the conversation we had. And one thing to note is that so many authors had their books um, that were scheduled to come out during this time. And Veronica is doing so many virtual events for this. So find her online and follow along at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter for everything we'll be doing to help uh, get the news out there about her book. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.